Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, October 22nd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The myth-busting has ended. No, no, not the Benghazi hearings. Those myths go on. You tell me your side, I'll tell you which myths you believe in. And I'll get to all that in the spiel. I promise, somehow, it will be more concise and efficient than the hearings themselves. But the myth-busting that I refer to is the Discovery Channel show Mythbusters. It will come to an end after this, its 14th season. 2,950 myths have been busted during this time, and still people don't vaccinate their children. Mythbusters was one of those cultural products like American Idol, Downton Abbey, Eat, Pray, Love, the Latin Grammys, and Harry Potter films two through seven that I never actually experienced, but feel I could write a graduate level thesis paper on. Also, I don't think I ever saw a full episode of West Wing or The X-Files, but you know, one was really an exercise in post-Clinton era Democrat wish fulfillment, and the other spoke to the cultural anxiety as technology redefined our lives. Oh, and by the way, I do know that Harry Potter 7 was actually in two parts, and I saw part two, also known as Harry Potter 8, also known as a really long wizard film that did not make me wonder, huh, I wonder what happened in the first six. See, I'm culturally fluent. Mythbusters would just show up without my even asking whenever we did an Is That Bullshit segment or whenever I asked one of my teenage relatives, hey, do you really think those skydiving scenes from Point Break could ever happen in real life? Dude, Mythbusters did that. So I'm sad to see you go, Mythbusters. You will be mythed. On the show today, I apologize profusely for that pun. I spiel about Benghazi. And we'll talk to a documentary filmmaker who eats garbage but she's really trying to get you not to waste your food. But first, it's Jill Duffy trying to get you more productive. The last time Jill Duffy came on the show, she was wearing a bunch of bracelets and things that have sensors because, well, I guess she's into tech and working out, but also because she wants to be more productive. So joining me now is Jill Duffy from the productivityreport.org. And that, that is your report. That's my report. Wow. How'd you get the idea for the productivity report? I was really interested in productivity because in the tech world, which is the world that I normally write about and cover, uh, there's a lot of apps and services for individuals and businesses to increase their productivity. Mm-hmm. So ways of working smarter, ways of working 
more efficiently. And I kind of had this inkling like, how much of this is actually based on research and science? Yeah. So I wanted to look at some of the research and see, is the advice that we're getting about things we should do actually based in anything real? And the more I'm looking into it, the more I'm finding these odd effects of things we think we know, but maybe we shouldn't really be doing. What's something that people think is true about productivity that you've been able to confirm? Sleep. Yeah? Sleep is really important for How? productivity. How much? Eight hours for everyone, period, done? Well, it's, it's going to vary a little bit by each person, but it turns out that six hours a night mm -hmm. is not enough. Yeah. So there was a really good sleep study done where a bunch of people came in, uh, they were all allowed to sleep different amounts of time, and one group stayed up for three days straight. Now, the group that was only allowed to sleep a maximum of six hours a night, after two weeks, their performance on tests for their focus and their cognitive skills was as bad as people who hadn't slept for two days straight. Because That's you get crazy. that sleep debt and there's nothing right. you can do to shake it. Right. It does accumulate. Right. And all the thing, I think that going without sleep, this was maybe a 90s or aughts idea. And all these CEOs, you could never read a profile of a CEO without, and I only get by on four hours sleep. Such a brag. Yeah. And it's not. It's just not true. I mean, be. if they think they're if they think they're being productive at that point, they're, they're really not. And chances are that they're probably sleeping more than that anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that there are all these apps because productivity, you know, obviously computers do make us more productive. But what about using technology to, to make us more productive? It's a double-edged sword. I mean, it also takes away productivity. It can. It can. So email is one of those things that we all know um, is something that interrupts our lives, something that takes away our focus from the real hard work that we're trying to do. So in, in the productivity world, you'll hear people talk about email as the work about work. Mm -hmm. And they say the same thing about meetings. It's not the work itself. It's the work about work. So the problem with email is not the sheer amount of it that we do. It's how we do it throughout the day. So some estimates say that we spend about 30% of our time in email. And that alone, maybe we need to do that much email. The problem is it's not 30% of our day, one chunk of time, or even two chunks of time, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. We're doing it little by little by little throughout the day. So what, what email is doing is essentially interrupting us yes. from that creative thought we need to have or that problem-solving thought we, we need to have. So if we could shift what we're doing to focus our email time in bigger chunks and not go back and forth to it all the time, that would probably make us a whole lot more productive. Because every email, there's a penumbra, there's a tail. And when you read every email, you don't qu quickly, if it's nothing you have to worry about, just going back to the thing you were being creative on, there's a lag or it stops the flow of creativity. Or just think about how many times you read an email twice. You yeah. check it when it comes in, you realize it's not that important, you save it for later. Later comes and you've got to remind yourself, what was this email about? What am I supposed to do about it? So it's just seconds and minutes lost that add up over time. Is there a better way to game your email? There's a couple of tools that I like, actually, that help you gain your email. Uh, one of them is called SaneBox. Mm -hmm. And you use your regular email provider. You use your regular email interface. But you allow SaneBox to go in on the back end. And it automatically filters emails that it thinks are probably unimportant into a different folder. So it doesn't throw them out, doesn't get rid of them, but it pushes them away. And because they're not in your inbox staring you in the face, you're less likely to go through them yeah. through all hours of the day. The important ones stay in your inbox. So hopefully those are things like, you know, the message from your boss or the million-dollar deal that you were hoping would come in, right? So those are still going to be there in your inbox, but it's just getting 
away from all that other junk that's just wasting our time, wasting our eyeballs time. The one thing I do is I'm pretty vigilant about unsubscribing because it's very easy to fall in the trap and just click it once, just click it once. But you add, you add up doing it every day for a year. So I really like to unsubscribe. There's a good tool for that called Unroll Me. Yeah. So you probably want to unsubscribe from a lot of things. And then there's a few things you want to you want to hear about those notifications. Look, you men's get the warehouse is always having a 40% off sale. I'll just assume they're having a 40% off sale. You want it's a freaking warehouse. Right. Okay. So there's a really cool tool called Unroll Me. Yeah. And it will take all of your subscription emails, daily deals, social notifications, and it packages them up into one email. So it sweeps the other ones away, throws them out gives you a summary instead. And if you ever want to read one of the things that's in the summary, you can just click it. So it doesn't, again, it's not totally getting rid of it, but it's helping you consolidate the amount of time you're spending on all that junk. Yeah, we actually have, we have Unroll Me, and I'm going to click on that and let's see what we get. I'm sorry, that was Rick Roll Me. And that also cuts into productivity. Jill Duffy is the creator, the driving force of productivityreport.org. Thank you, Jill. Thanks, Mike. The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Um, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing... But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Jenny Rustemeyer is the producer of Just Eat It, a food waste documentary. She's also the star and the person who has challenged herself to, um, you know, just eat it. Hello, Jenny. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, just eating it, is that really the way to cut into food waste, or is uh, it a bigger deal than getting over our need for perfection or our perceptions of what's spoiled? Is there something bigger than just eating the damn food? I think we called it that because it's, something that speaks to personal action, and that really is what the issue is about. We actually have way too much food in North America right now, so we do need to cut back a little bit. We have about 200% of the calories that we actually need per person. So if we ate it all, we would have even more of a serious obesity problem. Right. But the other side of that is the food producers know we don't eat it all. So they overproduce because that's what consumers, I don't know, demand, but that's how they act. What's the horse and what's the cart in this situation? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think we need to kind of look back in time a little bit to, you know, maybe 50 years ago where people were a little bit more conservative with resources and food was a little bit more expensive. So we didn't see people, you know, stocking their fridges with food that they would never get to because they simply couldn't afford to do that. So just because we can afford to waste doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. I was looking at various metrics for sustainable agriculture in the fruit and vegetable industry, and 
I started coming across these numbers about how much was being wasted. And here we were trying to get farmers to be just a little bit more efficient with their water, just a little bit more efficient with their fertilizer use. And yet, on the other hand, 40% of the food was not actually being eaten. And I just thought, how is nobody talking about this? So tell me about the choice to make yourself the guinea pig in the film. So this is my partner Grant's idea. You know, it brings a human element to this big world issue. If you can kind of see someone struggling through it. And he figured if we're going to be going out and finding this food that shouldn't be being wasted in the first place, the best way to demonstrate that it was quality food is to eat it. So we challenged ourselves to live exclusively off rescued food for six months. So that was food that was either already in the trash or was heading for the trash. And I'm not talking about eating off people's plates. I'm talking about perfectly good packaged food, still safe to eat, that was being thrown out for cosmetic reasons or date reasons, things like that. Did any of that food disgust you? Did you have any hurdles to get over? Well, I had to get over this mental idea that it was garbage food. I thought it was going to be disgusting and like it was going to be slimy dumpsters and, you know, everything you think of when you think of garbage. But it really wasn't like that at all. It was as if someone had gone through the aisles of Costco and just tipped the whole aisle into a dumpster. So we were seeing pallets of food. Sometimes something would be damaged, like the corner of one of the boxes would be damaged, and so maybe a couple jars were broken, but the rest of the jars were completely fine. So that's a good example of why food would be wasted. Holy cow. There's so much granola. Lots of salsa. I, I'm starting to enjoy this. I've seen people do this in videos, and I've seen photos and stuff, but I didn't actually believe that this is how much one could find. I thought we were going to be struggling. Now, people, most people can't live that lifestyle. So is there, do you worry about, you know, this is an extreme stunt, but you prove that you could live it. Do you worry about translating to the average American family who's not going to go dumpster diving, but maybe wants to reform themselves? Yeah, I mean, dumpster diving is not a lifestyle that we're advocating at all, and we really don't do it that much anymore. But it was a great tool for seeing the food and showing the scale of the issue. And really, we want change to come kind of farther up the system. I mean, first of all, we don't want people to have to dumpster dive for food anyway, so hungry people should be able to access that food through nonprofit organizations and donations. And also, we want people to realize that food waste is not acceptable in our society, and so we need to kind of change our mindset around that. To me, it's sort of funny that wasting food is not taboo. It's one of the last things you can do, one of the last environmental ills that you can just get away with. You know, if you were walking down the street and had a can of soda, you couldn't find a trash can, you're just going to throw it on the ground. I mean, that is the ultimate sin in in many places, littering. And you could actually be fined for doing that. Same thing with not recycling. It's something that in many places could get you in trouble, but throwing away food is perfectly fine. Wasting food is not only widespread, but it's condoned. Do you see any evidence of movement on people's attitudes? I have definitely seen movement. I mean, since we started working on this film, The UN actually just announced that they are setting a goal of 50% food waste reduction by 2030. And then the EPA, so nationally in the U.S., there's now a goal of the same thing. And what about the John Oliver spiel about it? Everyone basically agrees small businesses should get tax incentives to donate food. So we have to find a way to pass that. But even if we do, 
It will be one small part of what needs to be a much bigger solution, from you know, resolving to eat uglier fruit, uh, to taking expiration dates with a pinch of salt, to no longer worrying about getting sued by high-powered lawyers representing the hungry. Did that move the needle? I think that that did definitely make an impact. I mean, he has a huge viewership. And so anytime the mainstream media is talking about food and food waste, I think it's excellent. Tyra Banks did a segment on her show. John Oliver, as you mentioned, Dr. Oz did a segment on food waste. And that's all within the last few months. So the issue is definitely starting to come to the forefront. Yeah, I'm one of the three of those people of credibility. So that's good. <laughs> Jenny Rustemeyer is the producer of Just Eat It, a food waste story. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thanks so much. And it's uh, streaming on iTunes starting today. And now the spiel, those who hear but do not listen. If you're like me, you're psyched to download the C-SPAN podcast tonight so you can listen to the Benghazi hearing at double speed, thus saving a few hours, but still soaking in all the rich nuance and fact-finding. Although the visuals really do help. Like here, we have Republican Representative Susan Brooks of Indiana. I'd like to show you something. Now, what we're seeing is Representative Brooks placing large sheafs of paper right before her. This pile represents the emails that you sent or received about Libya in 2011, from February through December of 2011. Now she's patting a much smaller pile next to the big one. This pile represents the emails you sent or received from early 2012 until the day of the attack. Back to patting the big pile. There are 795 emails in this pile. We've counted them. And now she's patting the small pile. There are 67 emails in this pile in 2012. Oh, yes, this hearing showed you could pile on piles of lots of things. And there was even a case of counterpiling. Rep Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, starts stacking his own piles in front of himself. We have the ARB report. We have the report of the Armed Services Committee led by Republican Buck McKean, which debunked the stand-down order allegation. We have the report of the Committee on Government Reform. Now, bear in mind, these aren't with their accompanying exhibits or the classified stuff, because it would be... Because it would be awesome TV. It would be a visual feast that would make everyone forget that scene in Miracle on 34th Street where all of Santa's letters are poured on the judge's desk. But as Schiff himself points out, counting documents, even showing documents, is a lame, lame prosecutorial tactic. It's the equivalent of beginning your seventh grade essay with... Webster's Dictionary defines photosynthesis as the process of. But look, at least Schiff and Brooks kind of got to the point, and there were very few good points made during this hearing. Some of it was that it was familiar, and some of it was that what was new didn't move the needle much. Here was something that was kind of new. It was revealed that Hillary Clinton, pretty much immediately right after the killings of those four Americans, she told world leaders and family members that an al-Qaeda faction was responsible, not an angry mob spontaneously inflamed by an anti-Muslim video that was placed on YouTube. But as we know, in public comments and in TV interviews after the killings, the State Department blamed that video 
Blame's actually an inaccurate word. They cited that video. They cited it in talking points. Fingers were pointed to the video in days after when really officials knew that the video wasn't the root cause. Okay. But to me, that raises two questions. One, is that all you got? And two is, so what? It did seem like it was pretty much all they got. And as for the so what part, if you're convinced that there was something nefarious going on in Benghazi, that set of facts will further point to a deflection, a cover-up, a dereliction of duty. But, you know, it's just as plausible that we got a wrong story in the first days, that administration officials did hold on to that story for too long because the alternative made them look bad. But the misdeed doesn't go much beyond that. And all of this we knew already. Nothing in the hearing really would make legitimate headlines as far as newsworthiness. Well, maybe this is the headline, and it comes from Eric Erickson, very influential conservative, the guy behind Red State Blog. He wrote, The Benghazi hearing should not be, but is, a waste of time. In fact, I became convinced that the last thing that this thing should be called is a hearing. It's more of a talking. So I began to time the questions, the quote-unquote questions, that all committee members were asking. So here's Republican Peter Roscom of Illinois. Secretary Clinton, you were meeting with opposition within the State Department. So he's asking this long question. He veers off for a quote. He has this thing, which I think is going to end in a question. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute, but... Then he interrupts Hillary Clinton because she's looking at a note. I, I have I'm to... Not, I'm not done with my question. I'm just giving you the courtesy of reading your notes. That's all right. All right. And finally, we get to the question. Isn't that right? Well, Congressman, I, I think it's important to... I'll save you some time to tell you what that was all about. The question was, why were we in Libya in the first place? And the answer was, Clinton said... There were a lot of different opinions, and we thought it was important to depose Gaddafi. That wasn't horrible. This is a legitimate question to ask, as Hillary Clinton acknowledged. But the question did take a minute 40 seconds, and that was on the short side. This was a question posed by the committee's ranking Democrat, Elijah Cummings. I want to start with the number one question that Republicans claim has not been answered in... Uh, okay, okay, he starts with the question, so we're going to get the question. Uh, yesterday, the chairman wrote an op-ed, and he said uh, this is his top unanswered question about Benghazi, and it is, and I quote, why are people in Libya and, and, and Benghazi made so many requests for additional security personnel and equipment and why uh, those requests were denied. All right, great. So, okay, now we're going to get the answer. I'm going to give you a chance to answer that in a minute. If by minute you mean something like a lot more than a minute, because first Cummings got to list someone else's resume. Uh, he served under George H.W. Bush, um, and he also served as U.N. ambassador uh, under, he also served under Reagan. And then he had the fake going back to the actual question. Let me go back to that question. Oh, God, he's not even there yet. Would you comment on those two things, please? Yes, I, I'd be uh, happy to. Um, and that lasted over two minutes. Democrat Tammy Duckworth asked a four-minute, 18-second-long question. Republican Martha Roby had a three-minute-long question. And then there were questions like this one from Republican Jim Jordan. If there's no evidence for a video-inspired protest, then where'd the false narrative start? That were immediately answered by Republican Jim Jordan. Started with you, Madam Secretary. Democrat Adam Smith did this very same thing, answered a question with his own answer, but from the other side of the aisle. What is the purpose of this committee? 
the purpose of this committee is to prosecute you. But Representative Smith, thankfully, promised brevity. I'll make, and I won't take, take the, the full ten, 10 minutes here. And in fact, he doesn't take the full 10 minutes. And he does ask a question, but guess who gives the answer? Do we want to go back to Muammar Gaddafi in charge? I don't think so. He does let us know a little bit about his family tree. My aunt was actually a foreign service officer um, way back when. Uh... And then, a full five and a half minutes after promising that this would be his last point, the point ends. Well, job. And with that, I yield the remainder of my time to the ranking member, Mr. Cummings. And you may have noticed it did not end with a question. I do believe there were politics at play in this committee. Duh. I also believe that the American public was in a general way served by some of the preliminary findings of the committee and similar committees, such as we found about the very existence of Hillary Clinton's email server, and we now know that the original talking points about the video were false. Great. But is there any there there? And will this in any way hurt Hillary Clinton's electoral standing? Those, unlike most of what we heard today, are actually good questions. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi questions the myth that if a Belgian wearing a tri-cornered hat crosses your path, it means three weeks of dyspepsia. Executive producer Andy Bowers never bought into the myth that a panda bear's legs, if used as kindling, will spark a fire that cures indigestion. The gist, questioning Chicago Cubs-related myths of the billy goat and the black hat, but subscribing to the myth that Jason Hamels is a major league pitcher. Peru de Peru du Peru. Thanks for listening.